Andrew Womack Ministries presents this session from the 2015 Phoenix Gospel Truth Seminar. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. Thank you, Heavenly Father, and thank you for leaving the Holy Spirit here with us. Tonight we open up our hearts to the Holy Spirit and welcome the quickening power of the Holy Spirit to help our understanding that we would see Jesus crucified for us. Father, we thank you, and I believe that it's going to change lives in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Praise God. You can be seated. Let's turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Real quickly, let me just summarize a couple of things in case some of you weren't here for any of my sessions. Pastor Dwayne has been talking about how to hear the voice of God. It's been powerful, praise God. I believe a lot of people are gonna understand and discern that God has been speaking to them all along because of that. I started talking about how that people have an opinion of God that is inaccurate. And a lot of, this comes from many different things, but a lot of it comes from the Old Testament law. People thought that God gave the law to bless us and to help us, but actually the law was given to kill us, to condemn us, to make us guilty before God, to stop our mouth, to make sin come alive, and to make sin exceedingly sinful. All of those things, we talked about all of that this morning. And I know that those statements, if I just made that without you know, having spent so much time showing scriptures and stuff, most Christians would reject that and think, no, the law was something good for our benefit. The only benefit of the law was to take away our deception that we could ever save ourselves, And it made us throw ourselves on the mercy of God. And if you use the law for that purpose, then that's good. That's what 1 Timothy chapter 1 is talking about, that the law is good if you use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless disobedient. Once you become righteous through Jesus, the law is not made for you. It cannot help you in your relationship with God. All it can do is show you that you desperately need a relationship with God, that you need a Savior, and that's the only function of the law. But once you come to the Lord, the law actually is negative because it takes your attention away from God and His grace and His mercy, and it focuses it on your sin and on your failure, and it makes you feel guilt-ridden and condemned. And you are never supposed to live that way. So we've already talked about all of those things. There's so much more that I'd like to share. I could minister for hour upon hour upon hour. I've just now got people to a point where they're really ready to start receiving. And so I'm just limited in what I can say tonight. But what I want to do is when you talk about that we're free from the law and that God is no longer imputing sin unto us and that he's not judging us, many people just take that as, well, then praise God, I can just go live any way I want to and it doesn't matter. And there's a lot of ways that I could counter that, but I want to show you right here from passages that I've already used this week. I want to look here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and in verse 17 it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new, and all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. No, notice the terminology. He has already reconciled us. 
again, most people, I think uh, Dwayne mentioned this earlier, that uh, most people, it, religion, it's all about do, but true Christianity is all about done. Most Christians are trying to become reconciled to God. The truth is you're already reconciled to God. It's not a matter of something you have to do to impress God and get God to do something in your life. God has already done it. He's anticipated everything we could ever need. It's already supplied. If you need to be healed by His stripes, you were healed. You don't need God to heal you. You need to learn how to receive healing. If you need joy and peace, the Bible says uh, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, etc. You've already got it. You don't need God to give you love or joy. You've already got it. You, learn, you need to learn how to release and appropriate what you've already gotten. God has already done it. I've got a whole series out there entitled, You've Already Got It, So Quit Trying to Get It. It says that He hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. And here's the way that he reconciled us. The word reconcile means to make friendly or to bring into harmony. Like when you reconcile a bank statement, you take your records and you reconcile it, bring them into harmony with what the bank account says. You take a guitar and you tune it uh, all of the strings and you reconcile them. So this is talking about that the way we were made friendly or brought back into harmony with God, here's how he did it. He said he was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Here's how he did it, not imputing their trespasses unto them and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. If you are still living under a law mentality that only shows you your failure, your transgressions, how far short of perfection you've come, there is no reconciliation, there is no friendliness, there is no unity and relationship in that. All there is is rejection and condemnation. If you are gonna be reconciled to God, it goes on to say here as ambassadors, we beseech you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. God is now reconciled to you, will you become reconciled to God? God is friendly towards you. Will you be friendly towards God? Will you let him love you? The only way to do it is to quit thinking under the law and focusing on your failure. You can never be reconciled to God as long as you are looking at yourself and thinking you have to become worthy enough for God to love. It's amazing to me that people think that the longer they're in the Lord, the more holy they're supposed to be and they're supposed to be so much better. The truth is that the longer you're in the Lord, the weaker you become, the less confident in yourself and you just get more and more dependent upon God. You don't get strong. It's not like your weaknesses leave. It's that you quit functioning out of yourself and you become more and more dependent upon God. The only way you can ever be reconciled unto God is get out from under the law, from this focus on yourself and on your sin, and you have to focus on a savior. In verse uh, 20 here, it says, now then we are ambassadors uh, for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he, talking about God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness 
of God in him. You know, there is so much I'd love to say. The book of Romans chapter six is just an excellent uh, treatise of this whole thing. But I'm gonna just mention this quickly and move on to some other things. But in Romans chapter six, verse one, after he'd been teaching on grace and showing that you are not justified with God based on your actions and your performance, it's all by just putting faith in a savior. Then in chapter six, verse one, he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? that grace may abound? And of course, the answer to that is God forbid. In the Greek, that's as close to profanity as you can get without blaspheming. It's an absolute, unqualified, negative, no, absolutely not. Paul is not saying that you just go live in sin. But let me point this out, that Paul said this four times, three times in the book of Romans, and I think once or twice in the book of Galatians, he brought this up. Am I saying that you can just go live in sin? Absolutely not. God forbid was the answer every time. But let me say that if what you are hearing preached never leads you to this question, can I live in sin because God is not imputing sin unto me? If that question never comes up, then you haven't heard the gospel that Paul preached because he had to answer that constantly. If you are never being talked about how that your sin debt has been paid for so much and that God is not imputing sin unto you, that it makes you wonder, can I go live in sin? Then you hadn't heard the true gospel. The true gospel will make people think, man, can I just go live in sin? Well, the answer to that's no, but it is a logical question. If God's not gonna impute sin unto you, well then why live holy? And Romans chapter six gives two reasons. The first one is your nature is changed. You are dead to sin. You've got a brand new nature. And if you ever got to where you were walking in the spirit instead of in your mind and in your own ability, your spirit will lead you to holiness. You are a changed person. And some of you may think, well, man, that makes me wonder whether I'm changed because you, <laughs> you got a lust to do a lot of wrong things. Well, it's possible that there's a lot of people who claim to be Christians today and their nature never has been changed. They're just religious. And if that's so, praise God, you need to be born again tonight. We're gonna to give you an opportunity to do that. And I think that there's a large number of people who call themselves Christians that never have had their nature changed. And so that is one option. But also there are people who are born again and they're still living in sin because the law strengthens sin. The law makes lust come alive and they haven't been set free from the law. And so they're living in sin. But if they are truly born again, then they're miserable. The things that they used to do without any conviction, now they, they feel terrible when they do it. That's one of the indications that you were truly born again and that you've been changed. So one of the first reasons he gives in Romans chapter six is that your nature has been changed. You are dead to sin. And then the second reason is Romans 6, 16. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants you are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. So the second reason that you live holy is not because God's gonna reject you, but because Satan is gonna get an inroad into your life and he'll destroy you. So those are two great reasons. I could add another reason to it that's like over in Hebrews chapter 12 and I could show you other places that also, how are people gonna see God in you if you are living a sinful life? 
how are you ever going to be a witness to people if you yourself are bound to sin and stuff and you're telling people about come to Jesus so you can be free like me? So our witness is a great reason to live a holy life, which is what Hebrews chapter 12 is talking about when it says, uh, you know, that you have to have peace and holiness without which no man will see the Lord. People have interpreted that forever, thinking that without your holiness, you can't see the Lord. He will relate to you based on your holiness. But if you put it in context, it's talking about if you don't have holiness, other people can't see the Lord's. What's that talking about? It's not professing your own holiness. There's no other place in the New Testament that talks about your holiness is essential for salvation. Jesus' holiness is what is essential. So anyway, I've mentioned that real quickly. Those are great. I could preach on that for a long time. But what I want to do right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is to change some thinking here that when you say that God is reconciling us unto himself by not imputing our sins unto us, it's like people think, well, God just decided that he wasn't going to hold sins against us. He wasn't going to deal with us based on our sins and that God just decided to overlook it. And so now sin's not a big thing. That is the opposite of what really happened. And here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 is something that really, really ministers to me. It says, for he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God did not just declare you righteous and in right standing with him just because he chose to change all of a sudden. He's the Lord. He does not change. God is holy, and when man sinned, the, the Lord told Adam and Eve, he says, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Sin is deadly. And God didn't just all of a sudden decide to say, well, I'm going to quit making a big deal out of sin. I'm changing, and now I'm operating in grace. No, man, the Lord paid every last ounce of the judgment against sin. But instead of putting it upon you and me, he put it upon his son. His son literally became sin. And I could spend hours and hours. Again, the average Christian has never been taught these things. They've never sat down and thought through it. They just think, well, Jesus came. He was the son of God. Why did he come? Why did God have to become a man? And I could spend hours trying to explain this, but Jesus had to become a man and suffer the punishment that you and I deserved. And the reason he had to be God, it couldn't be some other man. If he would have been any other man, he would have had sin himself, because Romans 3.23 says all of sin comes short of the glory of God. He had to have a virgin birth. He had to be God. He had to be holy and pure. And God placed all of his wrath for your sin and my sin upon Jesus. The point that I'm trying to get across is God didn't just all of a sudden say, all right, sin's no longer a big deal. I'm over it. And I'm going to not impute people's sins unto him. No, he was a holy, just God. Sin had to be paid for. And Jesus made a huge sacrifice. I heard a testimony once about, it's probably just a made up story, I don't know, but anyway, about a guy that went to get a 
uh, ticket. He got a speeding ticket and it was like a hundred dollar ticket. And he went and appeared before the judge. And when he got there, the judge was his friend. Turned out that the, his, his friend was the judge. And so he thought, this is awesome. I'm gonna get out of this ticket. And so he presented his case and asked for mercy. And the judge said, you know what, you're guilty. And he brought down the gavel and he says, hundred dollar fine or whatever, and this guy thought, that's, I expected better for my friend. I thought my friend would just forgive it. But because he was a just judge, you can't just forgive it. The guy was guilty, he owed it. And so the guy judged him guilty and assessed the fine. But then the judge stood up, took his robes off, walked around the corner and put his arm around the guy. And he says, you know what, because you're my friend, I'm gonna pay your fine for you. Now see, that is a just judge. We want a judge that's just gonna look the other way and say, well, it's no big deal. <laughs> you know, everything's okay. No, sin is terrible. Sin is a terrible, terrible, terrible thing. And God couldn't just look the other way. He wouldn't have been just. He wouldn't have been holy if he had. So Jesus came. God Almighty became a physical human being and Jesus suffered God's wrath. Look over here in John chapter 12 and let me share this passage with you. Out of John chapter 12, Jesus was not long before his crucifixion. It was the very last week. And he just cried out and he said, Father, glorify your name. And the Lord spoke in an audible voice and said, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. And people heard it. Well, there's a great lesson in this. People heard the voice of God and yet some of them said it's thunder. You know what? If you don't have a heart for God, like Dwayne's been teaching, if you don't already hear the voice of God, God can speak in an audible voice and you'd figure a way out of it that it was thunder. You would rationalize it away. There's people that think, oh, if God would just do something miraculous for me, it's not true. They saw Lazarus raised from the dead and some of them immediately went and consulted how they could kill Lazarus and Jesus. There's people that saw Jesus raised from the dead and didn't believe it. And they took bribes and stuff to say that, well, the disciples came and stole his body away and yet they saw the angels and stuff. I'm telling you, faith doesn't come by some miraculous intervention. It comes by the word of God and if your heart is hardened towards the word and if you are a, a, a hardened heart towards God, you wouldn't believe though you heard an audible voice from God. Some of you don't like that, but it's true. And so that's the background of this in John chapter 12 and in verse 30, verse 30, Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me but for your sakes. In other words, Jesus didn't need to hear his father say that. He was in communion and he heard God in his heart and he didn't have to have an audible voice from heaven, but God did this for other people and yet many of them still rejected it. And then he goes on to say, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. That 32nd verse, I was guilty of this at one time, thinking that if you just preached Jesus properly, if you really lifted him up, he would draw all men unto him. And boy, I tell you, I struggled for a long time because I was preaching the gospel as best I knew how and people stayed away from my meetings by the thousands. And I could not understand because I thought if I was just preaching right, people would come. 
But that's not what this is talking about. You can look at some of the biggest churches. I'm not saying this is true of every big church, but some of the biggest churches in the world today are churches that are compromising to draw the crowds. They've cut their messages down to little sermonettes. They do uh, entertainment. They do all of these things. And I won't mention names, but some of the people who pioneered the seeker-friendly church have admitted now that they made a mistake. They've drawn large numbers of crowds, but they haven't turned out disciples that the people aren't true believers. Uh, there's a major ministry who just retooled their ministry to reach the young people, and they've got all of these things going, and, and you know what? It's working. And we have a mutual friend that just told us recently that said, yep, they got the young people and they got people that aren't committed to God. They aren't excited about the word and they lost all of the older people that have the money and they're struggling financially and it's not been good. You can do things to attract people and most of our large churches today are not preaching the gospel. That's not true of all of them, but many, many of them they have just dumbed the gospel down so that people can come and it is, that is not what this is talking about. This is not saying that if you just have a big church, then that's because you were really uh, you know, lifting up Jesus and glorifying him and he drew all men unto himself. That's not what this is talking about. If you look at this in verse 32, the word men is italicized. And what this means is that the translators, the King James translators were honest enough that when they inserted a word for clarification, they would put it in italics and show you that this wasn't in the translation. They added it to try and add clarification. And you have to do stuff like that because you know the Greek and Hebrew, uh, it was different than English. And so there are places that you have to do that, but at least they were honest enough to put it in italics. So what this is really saying is that I, if I be lifted up, will draw all unto me. It didn't say all what. And so they just inserted men unto me, thinking that that must be what it's talking about. But the verse in front of this was talking about judgment, verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. The verse after this, verse 33 says, this he said, signifying what death he should die. When he was talking about being lifted up, that's not talking about glorifying God and preaching him properly. That's talking about when he's lifted up on a cross, it was talking about his death. Is what he, he was talking about what kind of death. So the verse in front of it, the verse after it, was talking about judgment when he died on the cross for us. And if you use the context to interpret what this is talking about, I believe that what it's really talking about is that if I be lifted up, crucified, I am gonna draw all of God's judgment against sin into his body. Jesus became like a lightning rod and every bit of God's wrath, all of it, not some of it, he didn't just taste a little bit of punishment. You know, like he was so holy that for him to suffer one second was more than enough. No, he suffered, Jesus suffered. Not only the physical suffering. You know, again, I don't have the words to say these things properly, but I could spend hours trying to explain what I'm talking about. And most people just think that the beating that Jesus got at, from Herod's men 
and stuff was the suffering that he had. And I'm not minimizing that. That was terrible. It was terrible. Crucifixion is one of the worst ways of putting a person to death that men have ever devised. And I could spend a lot of time talking about that, about the pain, the suffocation, and stuff like that. I am not trying to minimize that, but the physical suffering paled in comparison to the emotional and the spiritual suffering. Here was holy God, a person who had never sinned, who had never done anything wrong, who was mocked, ridiculed, and he took our sin, not his sin, our sin. Like it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he became sin for us that knew no sin. He didn't just take a little sample of sin. He became riddled with sin. Jesus became so defiled so unholy, so impure with sin that his own father forsook him. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a quotation from Psalms chapter 22 and the next verse, Psalms 22, 3 says, but you are holy, O God, that inhabits the praises of Israel. The reason God forsook Jesus is because he became unholy. He became sin. He became defiled. You know, if somehow or another, if I could sit down and talk to each one of you individually, and if you would open up and be totally candid with me, and if I was to just ask, what is the worst thing you've ever done? What is your worst night of sin? How have you felt? And I bet you that every one of us in here would have things that we could name that you just felt like there's no coming back from this. I have gone too far. I've defiled myself so much. How could God ever love me? Jesus felt exactly your shame. Here is a holy, pure God who had never done anything wrong, but out of love for you and me, he took your sin and my sin into himself, and I mean he became sin for us. He became totally riddled with sin. Jesus became a mass murderer, a mass rapist, a pedophile, a homophobe, or not, I guess not a homophobe, homo, uh, homosexual. He became all of these things. Jesus became defiled. And I know that some of you take offense by me talking about this, but tell me how else you interpret that he became sin for us. He became sin. Your sin and my sin entered into him. You know, just for time's sake, I'm not gonna turn over there, but in Isaiah chapter 52, it talks about that when we see Jesus, that his visage was more marred than any man who has ever lived. Visage is talking about face. No Roman beating with whips could have done that. And it says in, I believe it's verse 13, that his form was marred more than the sons of men. If you look that up in the NIV and stuff, it says so that he didn't even look human. You know, when I saw the movie, The uh, Passion of the Christ, it was terrible and they rated it, X-rated, I think, because of the violence and stuff like that in it. And yet, as I sat there and watched that, I was so disappointed. I said, this isn't even close 
This isn't truly depicting. This is so minor compared to what Jesus really suffered. And again, they had him brutalized, but it still looked like a physical body hanging on the cross. You could tell he was a man. According to Isaiah 53, 52, 13, he didn't even look human. How do you understand that? No Roman beating did that, but you know what? The sin and all of the sicknesses by those stripes, sickness entered into his body. Every deformity, everything that has ever hit the human race, billions and billions of people all entered into his body and Jesus didn't even look like a human being hanging on the cross. And this is only talking about the physical suffering. The spiritual, the emotional part of sin was infinitely worse. Jesus, when he was praying the night before his crucifixion, he, he prayed and cried out to God and he sweat as it was great drops of blood. And I've heard a medical doctor uh, refer to that that's like your heart burst and this blood literally began to come out through his pores. And that wasn't because he had suffered physically at that time. It was him looking at becoming a pure person, becoming impure and taking your defilement and my defilement upon himself. I'm saying all of these things to say that, see, when some people want to just sit there and say, well, man, we're free from the law. God's not imputing sin unto me. So, hey, praise God, let's go live in sin. Man, you've never understood that the only reason you are free from sin is because a huge price was paid because God loved you so much that he laid his life down and he took your sin and your shame and your suffering. See, when I see this and see the price that was paid, instead of grace making me want to just go live in sin, man, it makes me want to fall down before God and give him everything I've got and say, oh God, if you love me that much, if you did this for me, I'd give up bubble gum for Jesus if I thought that it would please him. Man, I'll do anything. I've often said this, but I, we have people come to us all the time and say, well, God's telling me to come to Bible college, but, and then they'll say, I've got retirement only five years away. I, you know, and I'll get full retirement if I wait, but I've got this house to sell, but I'm not sure about this and what, and, I just don't understand people that God tells you to do something and then you're going to debate whether you do it. I cannot even relate to that. And I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm not saying I do, but as much, I mean, I cannot think of anything in the last 46 years since God gave me a revelation of what we're talking about that, man, once I know God told me to do something, I'd do it if it kills me because the love of Christ constrains me. Right after the Lord touched my life, he told me to quit school, which I was gonna lose $350 a month from the government. If I stayed in school, I was gonna lose my student deferment and probably get drafted and go to Vietnam, which I did, run the risk of getting killed in Vietnam and on and on. I got rejected by my own family, by every person. I got kicked out of churches because I said that God told me to quit school. And you know what? I didn't enjoy those things, but man, it was never a question of would I do it? Man, Jesus died for me. I'll do anything. He told me to build these buildings. You know what? It's in the natural. It can't be done, but he told me to do it. And if I'll, I'll die trying, I'm going to do it. 
But if I didn't do it, I'd, I'd try it. I mean, if the Lord tells me to do something, I'll do it. And I just don't understand. The only thing I can understand is that people just don't realize the price that was paid for this grace. And when you understand what Jesus suffered for you, then grace doesn't set you free to sin, but it sets you free from sin and from the condemnation because you recognize that Jesus paid it for you. Any person who would take the grace of God and use it as an occasion to the flesh to go live in sin, you do not have a revelation of how much God loved you and what price he paid for you. It's the love of Christ that constrains us. And see, this is what we ought to be motivating people with is talking about how great God's love was that he came and took your sin and he didn't take just a portion of it. He took all of it. I got another great teaching, which I'm not gonna go into tonight, but man, it'd be great if I did out of Hebrews chapter nine and chapter 10, that he not only paid for your sin up until you got born again, and then every time you sin, you gotta get that sin under the blood and confessed. And if you don't, well, then that unconfessed sin will stop God. He won't bless you. He won't fellowship with you. That's not true. The scripture teaches in Hebrews 9 and 10 that you are forgiven of all sin. Past, present, and even future sins were forgiven all at one time. The sins you and I haven't even committed yet are already paid for. They're already under the blood. And some of you are thinking, how? How could God do that? Well, you better pray he can do it because he only died once 2,000 years ago before you and I had sinned. If God can't forgive sins before you commit them, you and I can't get saved. He forgave all of your sins. Sin is not an issue with God. But does that free me up to go live in sin? No, no, no. Man, God paid such a price that I am a slave by love. This is what Paul said in a number of places. He called himself a, a bond slave to the Lord. He also called himself an apostle. You gotta keep these things in balance. I know who I am in Christ. I know that I've got authority and power and I know that I can speak and man, mountains will move. But I also know that it's not because of who I am, it's because of what Jesus did for me. And man, I am super grateful that of what Jesus did. I'm telling you, you've got to understand the grace of God is what brought us right standing with God. Look over here in 2 Corinthians chapter three at a verse that I used this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter three in verse seven, but if the ministration of death written and engraven in stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the spirit be rather glorious. For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. What we are living under is a ministration of righteousness contrasted with a ministration of death and condemnation. Righteousness, just a simple layman's definition, it just means right standing with God. We now have relationship with God. 
We now are living under the ministration of relationship, right standing with God. How do you get this right standing? Here's another verse that I used this morning, Romans chapter three. And in verse 21, it says, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. There is now a way to have righteousness without the law, without performing, without living up to a standard. And the way we do that is through Jesus. That verse that we read earlier, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God. Not through the law, but through Jesus dying for us. When we put faith in Jesus, his righteousness is given unto us. Not a law righteousness, but God's righteousness. Look at this in Romans chapter 10, in verse one, he says, Find, uh, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Boy, that is descriptive of the vast majority of the body of Christ today. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. You cannot be submitted to God's righteousness and going about to establish your own righteousness at the same time. You can't be trusting in your performance and trusting in Jesus' performance at the same time. Religion is basically said, oh yes, we have to have the performance of Jesus. You can't save yourself, but it's not only the performance of Jesus. You've also got to be holy and unless you do this, this, and this, God won't bless you. You can't mix the two. Romans chapter 11, verse six says, it's either grace or it's works, but it's not a combination of the two. You can't have your works mixed with Jesus. The moment you put yourself into this mix, you defile and weaken and pollute what Jesus did. If you say it's Jesus plus your goodness, then that equals nothing. But if you say Jesus plus nothing except my faith and trust in him, then that equals everything. You cannot add your own goodness to it. This is how Satan has come against us. Satan doesn't come to you and say, God can't do anything. God doesn't have power. I talked to a woman tonight who's in a wheelchair and having problems and she said, oh, I know God can heal me. I'm just not sure it's his will to heal me. And see, this is where most people are. Most people, if he's God, God can do anything. Satan is not gonna tell you God can't do it. What he'll do is say, oh sure, God can do it, but he won't do it for you, you sorry thing. And since most of us are living under the law and are focused on our sin and thinking that we have to be worthy in order to get it, well then that's enough to stop us and take away our confidence. But I'm telling you, God never has anybody who was qualified working for him yet. He's never had a single person who deserved anything. Everything that we receive has to come by grace through putting faith in what Jesus has done and not in what we have done. And so it says that uh, 
here that if you are going about to establish your own righteousness, if you are standing before God saying, God, I'm doing better than I've ever done. I'm fasting more, I'm praying more, I'm going to church, I'm paying my tithes, I'm living holier than I've ever lived. Now will you move in my life? You have just exempted yourself from the righteousness of God. It's not what he's done plus what you've done. It's either one or the other. You're either going to stand before God on the basis of your righteousness and go to hell, or you will stand before God on the basis of Jesus' righteousness and put faith in him. That's the only way you can receive. And the next verse, verse four says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Man, how plain can you get? Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. There was a period of time that God said, okay, you think you're good enough. You think you're righteous. You think I owe you something. Let me show you, thou shalt not. And he gave a standard that was so holy, nobody could live, live up to it. But the law did say, if you will do all of these things, then you can be right with God not to try and get you to keep step one through 10,000, but to show you a standard that is so far beyond your ability that it would make you despair of self-salvation and throw yourself on God for mercy. And now that Jesus has come, and now that Jesus took all of God's wrath, all of it, for all people, not only believers, but even non-believers. Did you know people who don't even accept the Lord have had their sins paid for? First John chapter two, verse two, he's the propitiation. That means the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus paid for the sins of the whole world. In one sense, nobody's gonna go to hell because of their sins. Their sins were paid for. They will go to hell for the singular sin of rejecting the payment that was made for their sin. They will be held accountable for what they do with Jesus. Jesus has paid for the sins of the whole world and now it all comes down to what are you doing with Jesus? Man, Jesus paid for the sins of the whole world. It's done and he is the end of the law. No longer do you have to try and live up to some standard? Jesus was holy for you and he became your substitute and all of God's wrath fell upon Jesus, all of it. There's none left. God hadn't got any wrath against you. There are some people that feel, but I did this wrong, how could God love me? What you're doing is magnifying your sin more than the sacrifice of Jesus. I have people criticize me often and say things like, you're just making light of sin. Man, I am not making light of sin. I hate sin. I think sin's terrible. I hate sin more than most people do, just based on my actions. I have sinned less outwardly in all of the big 10 that people talk about than most people have. I hate sin. I am not making light of sin, but people who sit there and say, well, yes, you've got to believe in Jesus, but you also have to be holy. God won't answer your prayers if you've got a sin in your life. You are making light of the atonement of Jesus. You don't think he paid it all. You think he paid a down payment and then you've got to make the monthly mortgage. But man, Jesus paid it all. He paid it off. Your debt is paid for. Not only the things that you've done in the past, but anything you could ever do, it's all already paid for. 
It's paid for. There isn't any wrath. God isn't mad at you. He's not even in a bad mood. When God looks at you, he looks at you in the spirit. And if you've made Jesus your Lord, he sees you free. He sees you clean. He sees you pure. He sees you his workmanship. Ephesians chapter two, verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. You are clean and holy and pure. The sad thing is we don't see ourselves that way because we've lived under the law which focuses your attention on sin. It makes you have the knowledge of sin. It makes you guilty and condemned. It magnifies sin, not the antidote to sin. It doesn't magnify the atonement of Jesus. It magnifies your failure for the purpose of making you condemned. And because of it, the average person lives with this sense of unworthiness and of, oh God, how could you ever love me? The way he could love you is because he put every bit of his wrath and his punishment that has ever existed or ever will exist upon Jesus. And he paid for your sins. The only wrath that is yet to come is not for a person that has accepted Jesus. You have been covered past, present, and even future. But people who reject or ignore Jesus, there is a wrath to come, not for those individual sins, but for rejecting such a great salvation, for pushing Jesus aside and saying, well, I, I believe he existed, but I don't need him. I'm good enough on my own. See, if you look at it that way, some people think, how, I've had people say this to me before, how could God punish somebody who just, you know, wasn't the person that they were supposed to be. They didn't go to church. They weren't really a Christian, but they were a moral person. How could God put them right next to Hitler and punish them the same for all eternity? I've had people use that logic with me, but it's because they're missing the point. They think it's their individual sins that they're suffering for. And since Hitler's sins were more grievous, than you know, the average housewife or something that isn't born again, then they think that doesn't seem fair. But what they're missing is you aren't gonna go to hell for your individual sins. You're gonna go to hell for rejecting Jesus. And it doesn't matter if it's Hitler that rejected Jesus or a moral person over here that thought they were so good they didn't need Jesus. Man, there isn't a hell deep enough or an eternity long enough to punish a person who just thought that Jesus wasn't important enough. It wasn't a big of a deal. I don't need him enough. I can make it without him. I guarantee you they're, they're gonna be justified to be punished forever for rejecting this great salvation. And I know that there's some people that don't track with me on that and they think, well, you, and it's because you don't understand the pain and the suffering and the degree to which Jesus suffered for you. It's not a big deal. If you could really get a revelation of this, I guarantee it would change everything. It would keep you living holy out of love and thankfulness for what God has done instead of out of fear of punishment. You know, again, when I saw that movie, The Passion of the Christ, I was sitting there thinking, God, this is even though it's graphic and it was all of these things, I thought this is nothing compared to what Jesus went through. And I remember some of my friends told me that they just wept for days after watching The Passion of the Christ, that they had an epiphany that it just changed their life. So I was expecting 
to have this major encounter with the Lord and I was actually disappointed. I was sitting there thinking, this isn't even close. And as I was watching this movie, I remember praying and saying, God, what's wrong with me? How come I'm not responding the way other people did? And the Lord spoke to me and he said, Andrew, through the Holy Spirit, I have shown you the suffering that Jesus had and you have a greater revelation of what I suffered than his disciples who were standing there physically watching this whole thing happen. They didn't understand what was going on. Many people will sit there, and, oh, I wish I could have been one of the disciples. Man, I praise God I wasn't one of the disciples because <laughs> I might have wound up rejecting him. But man, through the Word and the Holy Spirit, God can give us a revelation of spiritual truth so that it is more real to me than it was to Jesus' disciples. They didn't understand what was happening. I do understand through the Word and through the revelation of the Holy Spirit. And God showed me, He says, it's because you have seen it through the Spirit and there is nothing visible that could portray the spiritual suffering, the agony, the hurt, the pain that he went through. You can't depict that in the movie. I'm not critical of Mel Gibson. He did as good as you could do. But man, you can't depict the spiritual, the emotional things. The Holy Spirit has shown those things to me. And just looking at the physical suffering was nothing compared to the other things he went through. Because I've got a revelation of that, I don't want to take what Jesus has done for me and use this as an opportunity to co-live in sin because man, I'm not gonna be punished. I just can't even understand that. And any person who would take that kind of a response is a person that does not understand that Jesus paid it all. You are still under the opinion that he just paid a portion and you've got to also do this and earn God's favor and earn relationship with him. I'm telling you, one of the benefits of the law is to bring you absolutely to the end of your self-righteousness. And we need a little more law in that respect is that people still think that they're just awesome and that God owes them something. And man, you are so privileged, Father, to have me on your team. No wonder you chose me. I can see the wisdom of it. I'm awesome. And man, you just... You just get me out there and I can handle it from here. You need a good dose of the law to bring you to the end of yourself and let you realize that you aren't worth spitting on outside of Jesus and his love for you. And I know that there's people offended by that because again, you value yourself so highly. But I'm telling you that we were all dead in trespasses and sins. I heard a woman on television one time say, I wasn't like everybody else. My life was just wonderful. I had money. I was rich. I was famous. Everybody knew me and stuff. And she said, I wasn't desperate like everybody else. And Jesus has just been like the icing on the cake for me. My life was already great. And I thought, lady, I'm not sure you're born again. Because whether you realize it or not, man, going to hell, on your way to hell, it doesn't matter if you're living in a mansion on your way to hell and if you're on the front of a, uh, a magazine, it doesn't matter. You are messed up. If you've sinned, come short of the glory of God. All of us were undeserving of God's righteousness. 
And you need to come to that place. That was the purpose of the law, was to bring you to the place where you quit trying to establish your own righteousness and claiming your own goodness before God. Righteousness. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness unto us. Look over here in Romans chapter 5. This is where I begin the whole thing in verse 13 and 14. Let me just read on down here beginning in verse uh, 15. This is Romans chapter 5 verse 15. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. In other words, he's making a comparison, but this is an opposite comparison. Sin entered the world one way, righteousness entered the world, and they were opposites, but it was a comparison. And so he says, not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, many be dead. See, this is again something that most people don't understand. They think it's what they did that ruined their life. It's their own individual sin. So therefore, if they don't have as many sins as somebody else over here, well, then they feel like they're better. But this says that sin entered the world through one man. It's not what you did that made you a sinner. It's your sin nature that you were born with that made you sin. You go out and commit adultery, lie, steal, and do something, people think, oh, I'm a sinner. You were a sinner before you did that. You can take a little baby and they are a sinner. They have a sin nature. You don't have to teach little children to lie and to steal and to be selfish. It's in their nature. We were all born separated from God. David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. And that's not talking about that it was an adulterous relationship. It just means we were all conceived sinners. This is saying that... Um, as the, through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. There's many people that don't like this thing about thinking, well, you're saying that I was born a sinner. I was born separated from God. I was born destined for hell even before I did anything right or wrong. That doesn't seem fair. Well, the good news is that if you don't think that's fair, it's not fair for you to become righteous through what Jesus did. But you get it. If you're going to accept one, well, then you can accept the other. If you became unrighteous through Adam, then you can become righteous through Jesus. You didn't deserve what happened in Adam. You don't deserve what happened in Jesus, but you can get it. And it says in verse uh, 16, and not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation. You are condemned through what Adam did, not just through what you did. What you did adds to it, but you were condemned before that. You were condemned through Adam. It's, so in, it says, uh, for the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense, death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Notice that it's a gift of righteousness, not a wage, not a payment for your good works. It's a gift. You know, to receive a gift, you have to humble yourself. And there's some people that, no, no, I'm a self-made man or a woman. Nobody's going to do anything for me. I pay my own way. Well, then you can't get saved. 
You have to be born again as through the gift of righteousness. You have to humble yourself and receive it as a gift. In verse 18, therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. It was what Jesus, uh, Adam did that caused judgment to come upon you and me. That's what this is saying. It's not your individual sins. It's through one man, judgment came upon all to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Man, that's awesome. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. This 21st verse doesn't say it this way, but I could take all of these scriptures I've been using, and this is an accurate statement, that sin reigned unto death through the law. It says that the law was administration of death, that I found the law to be unto death, Romans chapter seven. So sin reigned unto death. That's what empowered it was the law. And the rest of this verse says, grace reigns through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. The thing that releases this new life in the Christian is understanding righteousness as a free gift and not something to be earned. Right standing with God, relationship with God as a free gift. If you are trying to earn God's favor, if you're trying to do something to get him to answer your prayer, to move in your life, then you are going about to establish your own righteousness and you have not submitted yourself unto the righteousness which is of God by faith. And the reason you aren't reigning in life, the reason that sickness is reigning, that poverty is reigning, that depression and fear and inferiority and condemnation and guilt is because you aren't walking in the righteousness that comes by faith. You are still under a law righteousness instead of a faith righteousness. You're going about to establish self-righteousness instead of a faith righteousness, a gift of righteousness. I tell you, the things I'm saying here are profound and most people just do not understand this. The law focuses your attention on you and on your sin. It will never focus your attention on what Jesus did for you. But Jesus paid everything for you. You know, one last thing I want to share with you is over in Isaiah chapter 53, as it talks about he bore our sorrows, carried our griefs. Let me just read these verses. I won't spend a lot of time on it. But in Isaiah chapter 53... It talks about that by his stripes we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's exactly what we were reading in John 12, 32, that when I'm lifted up, I will draw all of God's judgment unto me. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of every one of us. 
Every one of us have had our debt paid in full and much, much more than what was demanded. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment and who shall declare his generation? Contrary to the Da Vinci Code, Jesus didn't have any children. That's what that's talking about. Who shall declare his generation? He didn't have any kids. Amen. Any of you that have watched the Da Vinci Code and thought that that was something that was true shame on you for not knowing the Word of God and putting Jesus down to the level of a mere mortal. God forbid. It says, who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. This is an amazing statement. It pleased God to bruise Jesus. I don't believe it pleased him in the sense that he enjoyed it, but it pleased him. He loved, man, this is amazing, but he loved you and me so much. He placed so much value on you that he thought when he saw his son suffering and agonizing, his heart burst and him bleeding great drops of blood and being crucified, he says, it's worth it. You're worth it. God looked at you and says, you're worth it. That's how much he loved you. You know how you establish the value of something is what people are willing to pay for. They take these little baseball cards that you know you used to get three of them in a pack for a penny. And now they're worth $50,000 or something. It's not because of the amount of material in it or what it's made of. It's just what people are willing to pay for those things. The fact that God Almighty was willing to sacrifice His own Son and put Him to grief and bruise Him so that He could bear your sins, that puts a worth and a value on you and on me that is greater than anybody could ever imagine. Any person who's depressed and discouraged, I know that some of you aren't gonna like what I'm gonna say, but I don't like the way you're acting. <laughs> but if you're depressed and discouraged, you aren't thinking about how much God loved you and the price that he paid for you and his son dying for you. You're thinking about that you don't have your fifth flat screen TV and you don't have the newest cell phone and because of it, you're just depressed. And you need to pull your thumb out of your mouth and grow up and you need to look at Jesus and how he died for you. He bore your sorrows and carried your grief. Why are you carrying them? It's because you don't understand what he's done. If you would sit down and focus on what Jesus has done for you instead of watching as the stomach turns on the television and people lying and stealing and homosexuals doing all of these things and all this junk. Instead, if you would get your mind stayed upon God, you'd be in perfect peace and you'd have joy. Amen. Dwayne always apologizes and says, now everybody say you love me. I don't care. I'm just telling you the truth. Amen. 
That's the reason he's a pastor and I'm not. I'm gonna drop the bomb and let the pastors have to clean this up when I leave. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. You know why God is satisfied? You know why he accepts us? You know why he loves you? Not because you are lovely, but because he punished his own sin, son, put his sin, our sin in him, and he's satisfied because of what Jesus did, not because of what you're doing. You know, in the Old Testament, when they brought a sacrifice to the priest, it had to be without blemish. And so you would bring this animal before the Lord and you would hold it there. And the priest wouldn't examine you. The very fact that you were bringing the sacrifice meant that you were confessing that you had sinned and that you needed something. So they didn't ask you anything about, all right, what did you do this time? How bad was it? How many times have you done this? They didn't examine you. They examined the sacrifice to see if it was spotless. And if the sacrifice was spotless, it was accepted based on the sacrifice, not on the one making the sacrifice. God doesn't look at you and say, well, you aren't good enough or worthy enough. He looks at Jesus. And if you have put faith in Jesus, you are now accepted in the beloved because of what Jesus did. Hallelujah. God is satisfied because of Jesus, not because of you. And somebody's out there thinking, oh man, you're just encouraging people to just, you know, come before God and not get themselves cleaned up and not do all of these things. I'm just saying that God loves you. He's already made the atonement. And if you ever got a revelation of that, if you ever understood what I'm trying to get across tonight about how much God loves you, you would serve God more accidentally than you've ever done it on purpose before. You would serve God more under grace than you ever did under law. As a matter of fact, the scripture says in Romans 6, 14, sin shall not have dominion over you for you are not under the law, but under grace. If sin is having dominion over you, if some of you are unable to break the cycle of sin, if you can't get free of drugs, alcohol, pornography, or anything, if you are condemned and you feel like you want to change, but you can't change, it's because you are living under law. If you are living under grace, if you could just put aside your goodness and say, God, thank you for loving somebody like me. Thank you that you've already paid for this. And if you could really get a revelation of Jesus and how he died for you and what he's done for you, I guarantee you, you would break the dominion of sin in your life. Sin does not dominate people that have a true revelation of grace. People that are using grace as an occasion to go out and just live in sin and indulge ungodly lifestyles, they've never understood the price that was paid for that grace. And they're just, they're totally misrepresenting things. The Bible says in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared unto all men. Verse 12 says, teaching us 
to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, to live soberly and righteously in this present world. Grace teaches you to live holy. It does not teach you to go live in sin. Grace will teach you. Grace isn't God just whitewashing, smoothing over things and saying it's okay. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what that little acronym stands for, G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace isn't free. Grace costs a huge price, but it is offered to us free. Jesus paid for your sins and my sins. And brothers and sisters, if we ever understood that, I just don't understand why anybody would ever take that as an occasion to go live in sin. It would cause you to seek God holier. You know, I'm really glad that God raised me up to teach this grace because people would criticize me if I was just out here living a sinful life and not seeking God and not doing things. And they would say, well, you preach grace to justify your lifestyle or whatever. But I'm living a holier life than just about anybody I know. I spend more time studying the Word. I've never gone out and done a lot of things other people have done. You cannot accuse me of preaching grace to indulge my sinful lifestyle. Grace has compelled me to live for God and to be separate to God. And I love God and I'm seeking God with my whole heart because of grace, not because of law. I've served him out of fear of punishment and did it as a debt that I owed him and I've done it because I love him. And I can guarantee you that when you do it out of love, it's much better. Fear has torment. And we should be loving God for what he's done for us. You know, Pastor Dwayne mentioned it. He didn't go into detail, but he had an open vision of the cross. He saw him, wasn't it yourself being crucified? And then he saw that Jesus had taken that place. He should have been there. And that's what lit his fire. And that's what turned him on and got him going. The love and the grace of God didn't encourage him to go live in sin. It's made him live for God. I'm telling you, if you are sitting here and taking some of the things that we've said and using it so that you can just go live like whatever you want to because you're under grace, you ought to get saved. <laughs> Bible says this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Man, I could preach on that for a while, but if you see him as he is, you will become like him. If you aren't like him, you hadn't seen him as he is. And then the third verse says, Every man that hath this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. If you are not wanting to purify yourselves, if you aren't wanting to live for God, if you are trying to take what I'm saying as an occasion to, man, this is great news because now I don't have to go to church. I don't have to study the Word. I don't have to live holy. I can live any way I want to and it's all the grace of God. Then you hadn't been born of Him because every man that has this hope in him seeks to purify himself. If you're under legalism, you're doing a poor job of it because the law will actually strengthen sin. But 
if you are truly born again, you want to live for God. This message won't set you free to sin. It'll set you free from the bondage of sin. So if you are saying, man, this is great. I can go live in sin. You need to get born again. You don't have the right relationship with God. I'm not sure that your nature has been changed. But I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, some of, I, I'm, some of you are thinking, if I just threw away all of my rules and my regulations, and if I just got to seeking God and loving Him and just operating free of all of these restraints, what would hold me back? The love of God. The love of God would constrain you. 2 Corinthians 5, 16. The love of God is superior to fear. Amen? Praise God. I'm just praying in the name of the Lord that this will become a revelation to you. And righteousness will reign to life through Christ. This right standing with God by faith instead of by law is what will change your life. This is what causes you to reign in life is understanding that righteousness doesn't come by the law, but it comes by putting faith in what Jesus has done for you. This is nearly too good to be true. Man, this is the gospel. It's awesome. And if God ever captures your heart, I guarantee you he'll get your money, he'll get your actions, he'll get everything else. You know, I'm looking around this room and I've, I've known many of you for decades and I've seen people who, you know what, the love of God has exploded in your heart and you are living for God. You've stood through thick and thin, through hard times and stuff and I can just see hundreds of people in here that the love of Christ has constrained them, not fear of punishment. You're doing much more than what's demanded, much more than the nod to God crowd. Man, you're serving God with everything you've got. And I'm telling you that if you ever get a revelation of this, it'll cause you to love God. It'll cause God's love for you to just abound once you understand the value that He's placed on you, the tremendous price that He's paid for you. Man, it's awesome. If you really knew who God was and how much He loves you. It would change your life and then you in turn would go and change the world. Praise God. Isn't that good news? Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. You know, it would be a shame for you to have heard this message and leave here and not be born again. You've heard enough that you could be born again tonight. You've heard that Jesus paid for you. And if you don't know Jesus personally, then you need to make that decision and you need to receive that salvation tonight. It's imperative. And if you've understood what I've said correctly, you may be a very moral person. You might be a better person than I am, but who wants to be the best sinner that ever went to hell? All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You, you may need to humble yourself, and I don't care if you've been to church your whole life. If you have never put your faith in Jesus, your faith needs to be in Him. If you were to stand before God right now and He says, what makes you worthy? Would you point to your goodness? Would you point to your church attendance? Would you point to your morality? If you would, you would go to hell. 
The only answer that will ever work is that nothing makes me worthy except the fact that I put faith in what Jesus did for me. He paid for it. If you've not done that, you need to make Jesus your Lord. And you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I could spend an hour talking on this, but I'm telling you that the Holy Spirit, when you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which includes speaking in tongues, there's more to it than that, but it includes speaking in tongues, it makes the Word of God come alive. The Holy Spirit will reveal truth to you is what the Scripture says. He will teach you all things and lead you into all truth and bring all things to your remembrance. If you do not have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, if you don't speak in tongues, it's impossible for you to retain what I'm talking about tonight because this is contrary to your carnal, natural mind. You need the Holy Spirit to impart this unto you. And so you must have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to have it to go to heaven. I've had people say, well, you said you had to have it. Well, you have to have it for a victorious life. You can go to heaven without the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, you can get there quicker if you don't have the Holy Spirit because you aren't going to be reigning and overcoming. You're going to be overcome and you can die and go to heaven. But man, if you want victory in this life, you need to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Is there anybody here tonight who would say, I need one or both of those. I want to make Jesus my Lord. I want to be born again and or I want to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand so I can see. We'll pray for you and help you to receive tonight. Anyone? It's hard for me to see with these lights. I don't know if anybody, I can see some other people pointing. Here's some people back here. We've already had, I forget how many people, but 50 or 60 or more people receive the baptism. But man, we don't want to miss anybody. This is so important. Every person here needs it. You know, if you raised your hand or if you were supposed to raise your hand, would you just get up out of your seat, come forward and stand down here. We want to pray with you and help you to receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit. If that's you, just come forward right now and let us pray for you. We hope your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. It's the faithful support of people like you who make this ministry possible. We invite you to prayerfully consider becoming a partner with Andrew Womack Ministries. We maintain a website at awmi.net. Our helpline number is 719-635-1111, or you can write us at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80934. Until next time, we pray that you'll reach out by faith and receive everything that's yours through God's grace.